Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java Junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work in human resources, even if you've never been to college to study it, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a former HR executive who spent a decade working in recruiting and onboarding, as well as training executives and hundreds of employees across multiple industries. Today, he's a successful coach who's helped hundreds of entrepreneurs and other coaches launch and grow their businesses. But before I introduce you to Rob Gilbert, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's newsletter that gives you firsthand career advice and insights from the professionals like Rob, who actually work in the industries that most interest you. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. And while you're there, you're welcome to check out any of the hundreds of other interviews I've done with professionals in dozens of different industries. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Rob Gilbert, a serial entrepreneur and coach who dropped out of high school and started his first business as a teenager in the music industry and actually went on to found two record labels, Promo Records and Laidback Lab Records, which was Canada's first breakbeat label. Over the almost 20 years Rob spent in music, he performed coast to coast in more than 60 cities, including at the Ultra Music Festival and at Burning Man, which I have never been to and want to go to, Rob. He's also had releases and remixes on more than a dozen different record labels. Meantime, Rob's other day job, I suppose, was working in human resources for companies like KPMG, Sears Canada, Ernst & Young, Randstad SourceRite, as well as Kick Health, the world's largest independent health marketing agency, and Blue Dot, a company dedicated to creating a global early warning system for infectious disease. Gee, I wonder if that has come in handy at all. Through it all, across all those different industries and roles, Rob has been driven by the desire to understand what makes businesses thrive, regardless of the market conditions, and what truly makes people more confident, joyful, and have more impact. 
He is also the author of a pretty new best-selling book, which has one of the best all-time titles, Die Before They Do, From Selling Drugs to Lunch with Jim Carrey, Stories of Struggle, Near-Death Experiences, and Creating a Life Worth Meaning. There's a link to it in show notes. We're going to be talking about it towards the end of the interview. Rob, welcome to Time for Coffee. I, I want to ask you if you're caffeinated and ready to go, but I read your post on LinkedIn about <laughs> your relationship with caffeine. I had green tea today. Today is, uh, I had green tea, so I have a, a little bit of caffeine in me, not a, a full heavy hitting coffee dose, but I'm caffeinated to the levels that I'm comfortable with. And I just want to thank you. What a beautiful and thorough and heartwarming intro. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Rob. I have so much admiration for you. You are truly one of the bright lights who exudes joie de vivre and just the essence of what I think life, our work life, and our personal lives should be all about. And you do that every day on LinkedIn. And if you're not following him, dear listeners, please do, because this man this man is the real deal. Thank you. I'm just trying to spread a little bit of joy while being myself and help people along the way. So, One of my favorite posts, I mean, there's so many, but more recent favorite posts was the snow swimming. <laughs> You've done that before on LinkedIn because I've seen it. What inspires that? So there's two angles to that. One is something that my brother and I did when we were kids. My parents have old like beta and VHS, VHS tapes of us being kids and going out into the snow. And then in recent years as an adult, I take cold showers every day. I go ice polar bear dunking in ice cold rivers and lakes. And it's a really wonderful way to be fully awakened and it's really good for the immune system and it's something I do daily. So when we got dumped with a foot and a half of snow in a, in a short period of time, it just feels like a really great way to relive a bit of my youth, but also get the ice exposure that I do daily anyway. I have also taken cold showers. I don't do it on a daily basis. I can't last very long in the Marab. How long do you last? It depends. Normally it's a couple minutes and the key is to breathe. Holy you shit, a couple <laughs> of minutes? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you got to get it everywhere. It's one thing to get it in the face, but I want to get it on the back of my neck. I want to get it in my armpits. I want to get it on my chest and my, I want to get it everywhere. And look, anytime you're, whether you're doing a nice cold shower or you're snow swimming or you're going in a nice cold lake, the initial body reaction is like shock and your breathing is going to get really shallow and you're like, ah, ah, ah. And the key is to focus on your breathing and you're telling yourself, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this intentionally. My body is reacting because it's worried it's going to die. I know I'm not going to die because I'm not actually in the like in the North Pole or something. I'm choosing to do this and focus on taking long, intentional, deep breaths. And then once you regulate your breathing, you can stay in much longer. Mm, okay. I'm going to try it. Maybe I'll try it tomorrow morning. Thanks for the tip. So before we get into what you're doing now, helping entrepreneurs and coaches to launch and grow their businesses, which is what you've been doing full-time mm -hmm. now since 2019, I thought maybe we could flash back mm -hmm. a bit, Rob, to the early days of your post-high school work life. 
And I suppose I, I should start by asking you why you decided to drop out of high school when you did. I hated school and I really didn't feel like it was serving me. And I felt like I was being force fed to learn things that weren't going to be helpful in a way that felt really archaic. And that's one. So I really didn't like it. And then also I got into a lot of trouble as a teen. You know, I got in trouble on and off with the police. I, I, I had some kind of colored experiences and I knew there was other ways. Like I, 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 my dad had a business, a side business on top of his job. I saw other entrepreneurs. I was reading different things and I just felt like there had to be a different way. So I was always a bit rebellious. It really wasn't serving me. And I felt that there was different options available. So what was your first job? The first thing I did for money as a kid was bring my Halloween candy and sell it to, to classmates out of a suitcase. The first real job I had after that is I had a, a paper route. I did work at a fast food place for several years in high school. I did that. But I was just using that money to save up to buy more music and to buy more music equipment. And, and when I left high school, I started a record label. That's when I started my first real business. And then I, it was fun. I was getting fax orders in my bedroom and I was shipping stuff overseas. And I was you know, sending stuff to New York City and London. And I took this entrepreneurial spirit and the money that I'd made in legit jobs just to really invest in the, in the thing that I wanted to create. Beautiful. What kind of music was lighting you up back then? All electronic stuff. Like people would call electronic music or house music. And the kind of music that really I got the bug of in the 90s was the kind of music called breakbeat music. Most people wouldn't know what it is. It's like the rhythms of, of hip hop and funk and soul, but at a, a bit of a faster tempo. There are a lot of music in the 70s and 80s had like a part of it, but then there was a break in the middle. There was a part in the middle where there's like a drum solo. And that's the part where people tended to dance to the most in their early DJs in the 80s. They would just take those breaks and just play two copies of the record and play the break after the break. But there was a, a style of music based on that that was really big in the 90s in the underground electronic music world called Breaks, Breakbeats. And that's really where it was at. But for most people, if I electronic music or house music, those are the things I was really into. Mm. So how did you come to think about going into human resources and why of all the different job functions that are out there in the world did you pick that one i was working in a call center and i had that call center job because i was bilingual because my mother tongue is french and i speak two languages and it was a bilingual role and which was funny because it was for a dating website and dating phone service. So the, like we, we want to go on a sidetrack of weird, random, funny stories about that. There's a whole bunch. Maybe, maybe or maybe not appropriate for this conversation, but still, was, I learned a lot. And I was headhunted. I was headhunted by someone and it was an HR call center and it was an organization that I was trying to service people across the entire country with kind of a centralized approach. They had tried taking some people who were trained in HR and just like, cool, here's a phone, deal with this different mode of delivery. And it failed miserably. So then they had the idea that, well, what if we found someone who was good and comfortable and understood the workings of a call center and that kind of faster paced environment. And then we just taught them what they needed to learn about HR stuff. So the pay was better than what I was getting. It was kind of interesting. I didn't know. And then once I got in there and started speaking to people, I was like, huh, when done well, human resources is the intersection of business, which I am passionate about, and people, which I'm also passionate about. I've always had this curiosity about what makes people tick, what makes people joyful, happier, more impactful, more creative, whatever. 
And most places don't do it well. Actually, and I don't even like the term human resources. It's kind of gross. It's insinuating that humans are like their batteries to be sucked in siphon dry or something. But when done well, it is really this beautiful intersection of things that I am interested and passionate about. So I got hired there and then I learned a whole bunch about vacation tracking, benefits, employee law, the inner workings of all things HR, but definitely more from a, a legal standpoint and transactional standpoint where later in my career, when I was in people and culture roles, it was really a lot more about employee empowerment and how do we make sure people are, feel supported and can learn and continue to grow and truly make it an environment where people enjoy working. So that's how I got into it. Mm, I love that. I know, Rob, that you, as somebody who is studying Reiki mm-hmm. and you're a level one Reiki, can I call you master? Is nah, that appropriate? Reiki master is level up. I'm okay. practitioner. practitioner. Okay. Reiki practitioner, which if you're not familiar with it, is all about moving energy in the body. And you also very much believe in something that I subscribe to. And that is that the universe sends us messages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we need to listen. We need to be aware. And I think for college students, for teenagers and young adults, especially now, Rob, there's so much pressure and anxiety on them to get it right in the beginning. Because they think if they don't get into that right job, in that right career or industry, at the start, their life is fucked. What would you want to tell them? I love when I just want to call out, I don't think that I'll ever be in a conversation where someone makes a transition from HR to Reiki. That is just will never, ever happen again and amazing. And look, I'm turned 45 this year. And I had an old high school friend reach out to me last year and say, you seem, you seem really happy. You seem like you've made it. You seem like you're on top of the world. And my response to them was, yes, it only took two career changes, a divorce, near-death experiences, struggles with alcohol, et cetera, et cetera, to get here. So there is, the worst thing you could do is not choose something. The worst thing you could do is waste and spend a whole bunch of time trying to figure out what the right thing is, especially when you're that age. You haven't got, you haven't got a mortgage. You haven't got children. You haven't got the long-term impact of a decision at that age is so small versus what has helped me immensely now is the accumulated experience is that I have been exposed to different things. I have worked in different industries. I do know what kind of people I tend to connect to. I have had these opportunities to be exposed to things where I'm like, ooh, this fills me with energy. This feels exciting. This is something I would do for free. And once you, the only way to really find those things is for you to try different things. Because once you find one of those things, then you can double down on it. Then you can expand like, okay, how do I add skills in this area to get to do this thing as a full-time thing. And then it's those tropes as far as then you never feel like you're working. The way that I describe it is that it's like you're a mad scientist mm-hmm. in a lab. And just as a mad scientist with the goofy plastic goggles and the test tubes is trying to find the right formula and putting all those different chemicals in the test tubes over the Bunsen burner. And sometimes the ship blows up in in her face and she's covered in soot. And clearly that wasn't the right formula. It is the same damn thing 
with finding your passion, with finding what is the right message that you're getting from the universe. You have to do an experiment and fuck up in order to find it. It's the only way. Without those fuck-ups, there's no learning. That's where the real experience is. That's where the real learning is. And you have no idea. You've got no data or no feedback to go on. So the scientists, mad scientists, and her with her test tubes is the beautiful analogy because that's how you get information. That's how you get data. That's how you get feedback. So you know, like, okay, not that, but the biggest screw-ups are the things you learn the most from. And I can say that now because of all the ups and downs I've been through. So is there a particular type of personality, Rob, or a particular type of person that will thrive in a, we hate it, called human resources, but in that type of job function? It depends on the kind of role. And I mentioned earlier, like I experienced both extremes due to the kind of career I had. There are some places and some functions in HR, which are more transactional, which are really about making sure the rules aren't being broken and payrolls being processed and whatever. And to, to succeed in that realm, that version of HR, which still exists in a lot of organizations, then it is really about being detail-oriented and caring about the rules and the law. And you end up kind of towing the company line more. Then the more progressive, which is the way really of the future and startups and startups and tech companies have been renowned for kind of creating this environment. And it's It's not about the ping pong tables and it's not about beer Fridays and that other bullshit. It really is about creating an environment where people feel supported, feel listened to, feel they can learn and grow, feel they can show up as them full selves. And that's where you're going to have higher productivity. That's where you're going to have more creativity. That's where you're going to have ingenuity, which will lead to the business doing well. And for those kinds of roles, then it really is about deeply caring about people. It's about flexibility and it's about understanding business strategy. And not rules and laws, but like understanding the business strategy, because when done well in that position, then it is really a strategic asset to the business. Uh, and you're kind of trying to find that, that balance. Because look, it doesn't matter how well you treat employees. If the business isn't doing well, there's no damn jobs. There, is just, there are no jobs. But also it is stupid and archaic and really close-minded to think that you can treat employees any which way and that it will not affect the business. That is also really stupid and short-sighted. So yeah, caring about business strategy, caring, being curious about human psychology and human behavior and finding threads in those domains will help you succeed a lot in those kinds of roles. You began in HR, I think, and I'm only going by your LinkedIn profile around 2004, I guess in the call center, it was probably before that. And your last job, that you had in HR before launching your coaching company, Growth Habit, was in 2019, Mm -hmm. working at Blue Dot, where you were the director of people and culture. How has the field of human resources changed over the last 15 years that you were in it? Mm. The norm when I got into it was very few places seeing it as a strategic asset to the business and most places seeing it as transactional, most leaders seeing it as a cost center, as an expense center, uh, and most seeing it as like a have to have so that we don't get in shit with the law and we don't break any kind of rules. And now it's way more organizations that are at least trying to think about it, or at least trying to show that they're being more inclusive, diverse, open-minded and seeing that the positive impacts on the business 
when I started out and when most places were more on that, you know, transactional approach, people didn't trust HR. It really was, you know, and you still see that kind of stuff. Don't trust HR. They're really just in it for the business. Like you still see that kind of people saying that there's much less of it kind of now. That's probably the biggest, hugest difference is seeing that kind of evolution versus now you see people with roles of like chief people officer. In my last role, like I was on the leadership team. I was privy to all the big decisions. If we were in my first roles, it was the business made a decision, threw it over the fence and told HR to figure out how to implement it. In my later roles, it was the business is thinking about making decisions, is having people and people and culture roles at the table to think through it. Is there a different approach? How do we have it positively impact the business and be part of the entire thinking process instead of an afterthought? Mm. Do you think a high school dropout or somebody who hasn't mm-hmm. studied human resources break into a KPMG or an Ernst & Young or maybe even a Blue Dot or Click today, Rob? Yes. So the funny thing is, is when I got hired at KPMG, I think I was the, like, the first hire to the knowledge of so many people that had ever hired someone who didn't have a college or university degree. That was a huge big deal. Uh, when I got hired at Ernst & Young, it was still the norm too. Like, but I know both of those places and so many other organizations have dropped that as a need because the data shows that it doesn't actually indicate success of the person in the role. So those things have completely changed. And more than ever, especially like especially in this market where people are dying for quality people, transference of skills and ability. And just like, are you a decent human being? Are you the one who's going to be helping men relationships? Are you going to be the one who's going to be spreading gossip? Are you looking to continue? Like, so I dropped out of high school. I didn't go to college or university. It doesn't mean I haven't taken my learning seriously. I read books all the time. I take courses. I look stuff up online. Like I'm still like ferociously learning. So if you have those traits, then absolutely it can circumvent any kind of rules that are there in place. Speaking of traits, Mm -hmm. what do you think are the most important hard and soft skills to have to excel in human resources? Mm. First, I hate the hard versus soft skill things because I think that framing then it like immediately devalues things that you would label as soft skill. Like, I think that that's actually something that I've seen change too. Cause I think definitely when I started out, that would have been, everyone would have said it, that would have been the norm that would have been accepted where now people are saying like, is it really a soft skill? Like is, is communication and giving feedback is, is that really a soft skill knowing how to delegate? Is that really a soft skill knowing how to empower employees? Is that really a soft skill? So look, the, they both really compound on each other. And one of the funniest kind of inside jokes with HR leaders, people, culture leaders, when you get us together is talking about starting somewhere and people have been promoted into a leadership role because they were the best doer, aka they were the best at the hard skills in that role. But they have absolutely no business leading people due to their complete lack of ability when it comes to leading other humans and treating people as humans and making people feel empowered. So both are needed and just know kind of the difference that hard skills will only get you so far. But the things that have been historically called soft skills is what's really going to pay off in the long term. I used to always say, I can teach you new things. I can teach you a new platform. I can teach you a new process. I can teach you a new framework. I can't teach you to give a shit. And for me, giving a shit is a really great all-encompassing point of view as far as like, do you actually know how to listen? (laughs) That's probably one of the biggest things. Communication is the biggest challenge in almost every organization. It doesn't matter if it's six people in a one-room office or if it's 6,000 people and have offices across the country. 
And I've seen it. I've been in both. I've been in the 40 person company in one room and I've been in the five and a half thousand companies. So I've seen it. And so communication skills, aka, can you clearly, concisely express your ideas and feel comfortable doing so? Are you able to actually listen? And I don't mean wait for your turn to talk. Listen and make the other person feel listened to, feel seen and understood. Are you able to, and then to do that truly, put yourself in their shoes, understand their situation, employing empathy, like, and not just like feeling, but actually, why, like, let's say we're working together and you do something that I don't understand, disagree with, whatever, the default is it like get upset or frustrated or how could they or why did this depart? No, stop. Why might have Andrea done this? Why might that department have chosen this? And starting there. So those are the things that I think return the biggest dividends and biggest returns over time. Mm. So you've now referenced that you've worked for the, <laughs> the multinational behemoths with mm-hmm. thousands of employees like the KPMGs and the Ernst & Youngs. And you've also worked at the smaller companies, the Click and the Blue Dots. Mm-hmm. What's the difference in the human resources department working in those two types of environments? When in, in the bigger environments, it's a lot more structured. It's a lot more bureaucratic. It's a lot more common for people to have defined roles. Like there's this person handles everything benefits. This person handles everything vacation. This person handles people that are going on, on disability or whatever. So you have a lot more kind of siloed and you can end up supporting, even if you are in a bit more of a generalist, generalist role, you would more likely supporting like a specific team, a specific department where it has a lot of similarities versus at the smaller organizations. And it's, it's the same for any kind of role. Like I would say a great, smaller companies are, bigger companies are great because you can learn process and approach and those kind of systematic thinking will help you when it comes time to like expand or scale anything later. Downside is your scope of what you're exposed to is quite limited. So you can maybe become an expert in thing. Working in a smaller company, whether it's you know a, a startup or scale up kind of environment, you get exposed to so many different things. The, the, the breadth of things you might be responsible for are wide. The amount of learning you can have and things can move at a really slow pace if there's thousands or tens of thousands of employees and it has to go up seven levels of command for someone to okay it before it goes versus in the smaller environment it's hey i have an idea we could do this and someone says cool do it or you're just sometimes empowered to like you just do what you think is right in the variety of different tasks projects you'll be exposed to so a year in a smaller company is often equal to two three four years in a big company as far as the breadth of things you get exposed to and the amount of learning you get and i would imagine in the smaller company, it would matter that much more mm. who you're reporting to. Because if you're in a big company that has all those best practices, systematized, kind of baked into the fabric of the company, mm-hmm. your manager matters, but not as much if you're going to be able to kind of run in a million directions because you want that mentorship. Yeah, I think, well, I think it matters in all places, but you're right as far as in the structured environment, the amount of things they might be either exposing you to or choking you away from are are limited versus in the small organization. They can really, and actually you're bringing up another great point that's worth mentioning is one of the struggles of being a people leader, an HR leader, people culture leader is how do you create that connection between frontline employees or people and regardless of the role to the mission? 
to the goal of the organization. And in a bigger company, it's really easy to feel like you're a cog in a big machine versus in the bigger, sorry, the smaller organization, not only do you have the potential for way more learning, exposure, variety, et cetera, but your proximity to feeling that the work you're doing it matters or that it's making a difference or it's actually fueling the mission is greater. Rob, what advice do you have for college students as they prepare to head into the working world for the first time in terms of how to take advantage of their human resources department at whatever company, whatever size they end up at, and how they can put themselves in the driver's seat of their own professional development? What a great question. One, see them as a human. Definitely back to that idea earlier that in some companies, some frames of thinking, some people think like, oh, they're just towing the company line or they're just here to you know, keep the company out of trouble. See them as a human, build a relationship with them, get to know them and don't shy away from getting to know them, what they're, they're there to do and who they are and what's important to them. Uh, but also not from shying away kind of that you want to learn, that you want to grow, that you want opportunities. And just kind of making that clear would be the, the best thing you can do. Because in all organizations, regardless of where they are on that spectrum between like HR is transactional, HR truly is a strategic partner. There are closed doors meetings all the time where employee decisions are made, where that HR person can influence the outcome. And them knowing you, knowing you're about having a connection to you and knowing what you want to learn and grow can really positively impact what you get, what you get to do and where you get to go with things. And that would be the biggest thing. I think that would honestly be the thing that would serve people the most. So in 2019, after two years at Blue Dot, where you worked as director of people and culture, you quit. Why? Because anytime I slowed down, Anytime I went on vacation, anytime I unplugged, anytime I ignored my inbox for longer than a couple hours, I was overwhelmed with this f- belief, this feeling, this like nudge that I couldn't, I couldn't ignore that I was meant to do more, that I was meant to help more, that I could have broader impact. And it was so telling because, as you mentioned earlier, what Blue Dot does, you know, using data to track and predict the spread of infectious disease, the company actually had a mission kind of worthwhile. It wasn't just, a bank trying to make more money. It just wasn't selling some random widgets. So the company had some greater mission. I was in a leadership role. I was coaching the CEO and other people. I had a certain amount of autonomy and exposure and learning and growth. And I still wasn't happy. I still had that feeling like oh, I'm meant to do more. Oh, I'm playing small. And that was the biggest catalyst for it. Funny enough, I started feeling that feeling and I was afraid to make the jump. I was afraid to like, who the heck am I to think I'm a coach? Who, how can I do this? Who's going to hire me? All those, you know, imposter syndrome things came up. And I started considering the inbox messages that I was getting from recruiters because uh, I was in Toronto, the tech market was hot. There was a real lack. And I think there still is of really wonderful people and culture leaders. So I was getting messages regularly from recruiters. And before that, I was ignoring them. And I thought, well, maybe that's the, that's the solution. I go get a VP title somewhere and I'll get a big increase and that, that'll solve the problem, which is obviously not the case. But I was interviewing with two startup co-founders. Great second interview. We're 90 minutes in, we're wrapping up. And it really is a throwaway question. And they're like, hey, five years from now, what, what's in store for you? What do you see? And the word coach fell out of my mouth and it surprised me as much as it surprised them. And from that point, I was like, yeah, I've been ignoring this and I've been playing small and I I need to figure out how to make this work. And I dedicated a bunch of time and energy and effort to doing that until I was able to quit. 
So how did you come to start Growth Habit? And can you tell us how you came to focus on coaching coaches? Because that wasn't your initial plan, was it? Not at all. Not at all. I just, once I made the decision and I went all in on it, then it was about finding as much as I could learn on it. I joined programs. I bought books. I hired mentors. I went for weekend workshops. I just, anyone who is doing what I wanted to be doing, who I felt I might be able to learn from, I sought these people out. I sought out their workshops, their programs, their courses, their books. I spoke to like, really, like it was an obsession. And so I really made it a singular focus. So that was the biggest thing. And yeah, if we spoke three years ago and you were like, hey, Rob, what do you do? I would say, Andrea, I'm a creativity coach. I would have said to you, I coach creative people. And that's because of my background in music and I help people tap into their creativity more consistently. And some of my first clients, I had recording artist, a singer, a writer, photographer, people that are in that kind of creative realm. But then I had people messaging me and asking me about habits. So sharing and posting a lot about habits and how much habits have changed my life. And especially on Instagram, I was sharing my morning routine and this like massive transformation I was having because of habits. And people started saying, hey, that, this, can you, can you help me do that? I, I want some of this. So then that's where you know, the name Growth Habit came from as far as my company name. And when I launched, when I quit Blue Dot, went full-time with it, I called myself a habit strategist. That was the title I'd given myself instead of you know coach or something. I was a habit strategist. And 11 of my first 12 clients from that launch were entrepreneurs. It's not what I intended. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is surprising. Why is that? And I thought, well, but so they're, they're a bit rebellious. They're looking to solve interesting problems. They are driven. They want to make an impact. I was like, oh, these are my people. So then I said, you know, I was a habit strategist helping entrepreneurs. And that was my focus for a bit. But then I had coaches showing up and asking me questions. And they were like, how the, the people are literally like, how the hell have you done this? And they're like, I've been doing this for a couple of years. And I can't get traction. How did you launch and get clients overseas? How do you have all these inbound leads? How have you managed to do what you did? And I had a couple intro calls with people and you know, asked me if I coach coaches. And I was like, well, no. That's what I, who, who am I to coach coaches? I'm just starting out here. Definitely not massive imposter syndrome. But then when the third one showed up in a 10-day span to pick my brain about what I was doing and how I'd done it, I was like, huh, yeah. Yeah, I can't help these people. I just thought about like, what are the steps that I took? What are things I've learned? What are things that I've taken from my years of running previous businesses, from the record label, from the bath and body product business, from getting clients in different platforms. And I started teaching people the, the things that I did to get to where I was at. So that was the last transition where I focus now on specifically helping coaches. I have some other entrepreneur clients. I have someone who runs an agency. I have someone else who has a recruiting company or has a tech company. Like I have a couple entrepreneurs, but most of my clients are specifically coaches. Yeah. yeah. The, those guys are the outliers. <laughs> yes, they're the outliers. So what is your philosophy around creating online content as a coach or as an entrepreneur in order to attract the dream clients, the ideal clients as inbound leads? It is the biggest opportunity of a lifetime. And it's insane to me because I remember when there was only broadcast media. I remember where everything was just being talked at, whether it was magazines, billboards, TV, radio. And now we have this ability where anyone can publish anything at any time. You don't need anyone's permission. You need to create an account. But whether it's YouTube, LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, like it just, these places are there for you available. And it's wild to me. It's because I have struggled like with other businesses. 
I printed flyers. I ran around. I really hustled. I faxed things to places overseas. I mailed packages to places hoping that they would consider my offerings. You know, I went door to door into stores and haggled with them to stock products. I've, so now the idea that thanks to the internet and these wonderful magical devices that you can get your message out anywhere for free without permission, it truly is magic. And it's one of the things that I teach people how to do. I have different frameworks and tools that I teach people as, as far as like, this is how you do it. These are the kinds of this is the kind of content you create. This is the, you know, the ingredients that are required. And it's amazing. I, the, I had a post a couple of weeks ago, one where I'm buried in a pile of my funky, colorful socks. And the post was, I'm not your coach if, and there was a few things, but I might be your coach if this is like kind of a contrasting thing. I had two super interesting things happen. One, I had someone who'd already booked an introduction call with me who canceled it after seeing that post. And I just signed up a client on Friday that was a, who was a total stranger and saw that post as the first introduction to me and seeing that post. And they went to my website and they saw what they liked and they watched some videos and they booked a call and they showed up pre-sold and ready to go. And to me, it's amazing because the person who decided that I wasn't for them is great. They saved themselves time. They saved me time. And then the other person was like, yeah, I saw that. And I thought, I have to work with this person. And it if you are intentional with what you're doing and how you're putting stuff out there and you truly are being yourself, then it turns into a magnet. That's it. Do you have to have a colorful sock collection, <laughs> which is really a metaphor for a colorful personality, which you clearly have, Rob, in order to attract people to you? Definitely not. Well, I, there's, there's, there's a meme going around for a while and a screenshot of it. It's like, don't worry that someone doesn't like you. You don't even like everybody. Like this idea that some people don't like you. Well, yeah, you don't like everyone. You're not meant to be for everyone. And for some people, I am too gregarious. I am too outspoken. I am too whatever. The, you know, I might post a video of me dancing or whatever, and that's too much. Cool. They're not my people. I don't want to have to filter myself. Like I, I fucking love the fact that you swore in conversation here. And I intentionally swear sometimes too, because I'm passionate. I love what I do. And it means sometimes I swear. And if me swearing is going to throw you off, then I'm not meant for you. Go find someone else who's never going to swear. And then everyone is happy. And if you are more quiet or reserved or whatever, great. Because if that's who you naturally are, and that feel com feels comfortable to you, that's who you would most likely enjoy working with more. And that's who's going to be more naturally attracted to you. And one of the biggest things I do with people is helping them create this alignment between like who you are truly, what you actually enjoy, what lights you up, what are the things you would do if money was no object, and how you show up online. And the closer those things are to being the same, then the people will reach out to you who you are excited to serve. And yeah, the, my favorite contrast to this is why it's so important to know who you are serving and who your dream clients are. Because if we want to take a spectrum, on one end is people who really value creativity. And the other is people for them, efficiency is the most important thing. Like efficiency is a high, high value. Those things couldn't be any further from each other. Like they will really conflict with each other. So you need to know who you're servicing, need to know what's really important to you, what your values are, because then you can lean into it. Because if you're, you're really big about efficiency, well then no, the creative dancing, whatever loud sock collection, that's not going to jive and kind of vice versa. I absolutely fucking loved and love your dance videos, Rob. I have never seen someone who is not a professional dancer just oh, really 
live into one of their gifts the way that you have online and you look like you don't have a bone in your fucking body. It's so beautiful to watch. And I hope we're going to get an opportunity to have a little dance party at the end. We're getting into the last few questions here. And I, I want to talk with you, Rob, about your best-selling book, which was published in late 2021, mm-hmm. published to incredible reviews, Die Before They Do, From Selling Drugs to Lunch with Jim Carrey, Stories of Struggle, Near-Death Experiences, and Creating a Life with Meaning. Why did you want to write this book? And holy shit, you did it in like 40 three or 44 days, something like that, which is mind blowing. (laughs) So, oh, smiling so big right now. Not unlike many people, I had a goal and aspiration and dream at some point to write a book. It's something that I wanted to do. And there was a point maybe even 10 years ago where I had a bunch of like sticky notes and some early ideas, but I didn't know the purpose of the book. It felt kind of forced. I really didn't have clarity on who I was fully and it, it didn't take off. And for last year, I really set a goal. I just got rid of the sticky notes. I had three stickies on the wall as far as like what one of the goals were. And to write my first book was one of them. So I started speaking to people and I started talking to someone who's a book agent, someone else who's a book coach. And the good advice that I got from a few people was, hey, you're a coach, Rob, you've got a couple of programs. Just take one of your programs, distill it into a book. It'll be quick, it'll be easy, be great for the top of funnel for you know your, your marketing system. And I tried, it felt gross, it felt forced, it felt like homework, it felt like I was forcing it and I really, really wasn't down with it. And then my incredible loving partner pointed out that my storytelling tended to resonate well when I shared it online and that she thinks I'm a pretty good storyteller and I could do a kind of a collection of stories. And then I started thinking about whether it's like Chicken Soup for the Soul or some other kind of books like Glennon Doyle's Untamed. I was just going to say that. I've got it right here. Untamed. Untamed. sounds like Glennon, her approach to writing. Yeah. And so she gave me her copy of that and I read that and I thought, huh. And then in in combination with that, I had put a post out and one of my friends and clients and incredible people, Kate, reached out and went out of her way to say, I don't know if you know this, but you're an actual, a fantastic storyteller. And it's not something that I'd ever kind of considered. And then once I made that decision, and once I realized that, and I gave myself permission that this is what the book could look like, and it didn't need to be like some forced thing that was going to be great for the top of funnel. I'm doing quotes if you're only listening to audio here. Then it flowed out of me. And from the point where I declared it, I wrote most of the book in seven days in a hotel room. And I wrote the first draft was 43 days. Yeah. So, so inspiring to me because I too want to write a book and I find it, it does kind of put that finger on the nerve of imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. and how the hell will I do that? And what would the book be about? And, and all of those things. So huge respect, huge respect, Rob. Congratulations. Thank you. Rob, one of the questions that I try to ask all time for coffee guests is if they would share a time in their professional life when they struggled, when they failed, maybe when they got fired. And I talk openly mm-hmm. about this here on the show and on LinkedIn about having been fired twice in my 40s. And later 
came to realize what unbelievable opportunities for growth they had been and how grateful I am they happened. And I know that this ties into the book. Mm-hmm. What about you? What would you want to share as a way to inspire our young listeners to appreciate that these are all opportunities for growth? Yeah, I think the basic biggest example, and I love that you shared, you openly share that you've been you know, fired twice in your 40s, was me being, yeah, let go and fired in my, my mid-30s. And it's hard when you're in it. Anything that's difficult when you're in the moment, it's hard. But if you really do believe that things are happening for you, you know, they're not happening to you, then you can start to see the lesson. And if you can start thinking about what can you get from this? How can I learn from this? How is how might this possibly be good? And the way I ended up there is just not listening to my inner compass. Like I wasn't happy. I didn't really care for the mission of the company. There was crap going on with politics in the office that I was trying to avoid. And whatever. like, it's just, it was clear that my expiration date in that role wasn't there, but I was ignoring my intuition. I wasn't listening to the little voice. And it makes me think of the really great Jim Carrey quote, then although you can fail at something that you don't like doing, so you might as well try doing what you love. Beautiful. So what would your, what would a story be? So I'm working at, I don't want to say the, the company, I was working somewhere and that was it. Like I wasn't bought into the company's mission, wasn't really happy. Things were shifting. Things were getting really political. And I tried to ignore it, play the ostrich role, ignore it. It will kind of go away. and. Yeah, I got called in, got told I was done, got walked out. It was crazy. And it's just such a, a, in the moment, it's such a crush to confidence. It's such a, like, who am I? And what value do I have? And will I be able to find another job? What could I have done to, to have stopped this? And just, it doesn't, it's not the end of you. Just know that, I think that's something like, if there's a, a, one beautiful, awesome gift from the pandemic, it's people realizing that they are not their jobs and that they are different and they can be someone outside of work. And kind of bringing everyone who's on a treadmill sprinting without really stopping to think about it. It's like someone came and unplugged all the treadmills and people were forced to kind of deal with their, you know, their work-life balance, happiness, purpose, and alignment. So yeah, look, I, I was out of alignment with the job. I didn't believe in the mission. There was politics going on that I either was trying to avoid or even got sucked into a couple of times and it blew up in my face and I got fired. It's a huge, huge, painful experience. So difficult at the moment. I was worried about whether I was going to be able to afford the apartment I was living in and support the children and all sorts of terrible stuff. Like, where I punched the gut. Like, I cried. I cried for weeks trying to process it. But the absolute best gift and the absolute huge blessing. And I heard a quote last week that I'm really loving is that sometimes blessings look like bullshit. I think that's a way to frame it. What is the learning here? So one final opportunity for learning for our young listeners, Rob, if you could Talk to them right now. Those who are graduating later this year, we're doing this interview in sort of early-ish February 2022, how they can create an intentional life with meaning, purpose, and impact. What advice would you give them? I think the most powerful thing I could say to them is to question their fear. The question, the fear, that this fear of like, well, what if it doesn't work out? What if it's not the right role? What if I'm judged? What will my parents think? What will that fear is a liar and it's trying to keep you safe, but based on 
worried about saber-toothed tigers and worried about there being a bear and worried about stuff that don't exist. And it's the world that there's a few things. One, anyone who's saying to you, oh, well, what about that? What about the risk? Have you thought about that? And that seems dangerous. That Those people are all talking through their own fears at you and they're projecting their fears on you. When it comes to our parents, cousins, whoever, peer groups, well-meaning, many of them well-meaning, they might even love you and be so well-meaning. But again, they're, that's through their lens of their own worries and their own fears. And especially if they're people that are considerably older than you, they lived in a different world. They grew up in a world where like, you get a job, there's a defined benefit, you're guaranteed you'll be there for 15, 20, 25 years, you leave, you got a pension. Pensions don't exist, job security doesn't exist. So you're getting advice that is so out of date. And I always think back to when I was a kid and I was afraid of the monster under my bed. And it was a fear that would stop me from going to the washroom. It was a fear from stopping me to go get books off my shelf. And as long as I tried to pretend it wasn't there or ignored it or didn't look, then it festered in the dark and it grew bigger in the dark. The best thing my mom could do is she came in and we just shine a big bright light under there. What's under there? You know? And it's the same thing with your fears. Ask it questions. What is the worst thing that could happen? If it did happen, what might you be able to do to address it? What are the upsides, the potential learning, the potential growth that you can get from taking this risk, from trying something new, from applying to that industry that you never thought before, from putting your hand up for that promotion, for trying to create a side business, whatever it is. They like the word, we've heard it so much that people forget what it means. Like get out of your comfort zone. We hear it so much, but when you're in your comfort zone, it means that you can predict the outcomes. It means that there's nothing that can happen that is dangerous or safe. And it's like that quote about boats. A boat is safest in the harbor, but boats weren't created to stay in the harbor. It's the same for you. So if you want learning, if you want growth, if you want to expand, when you're younger is the time to do it and to question the fear, to challenge the fear. Because there's no dragon, there's no bear, there's no, it's not actually true. No saber-toothed tigers. There's no saber-toothed tiger. Rob's book is called Die Before They Do, From Selling Drugs to Lunch with Jim Carrey, Stories of Struggle, Near-Death Experiences, and Creating a Life with Meaning. You can also follow Rob, please follow Rob on LinkedIn. You'll see the link to his website there and you will get inspired every day by following this man. Rob, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee, even if it was green tea today, with me and the T4C community. This was just wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been such a joy. I really appreciate the depth of your questions. And it's nice to think that maybe some of my experiences from previous roles that I don't think about so much in the world of HR could be of help to people that are starting out because the opportunities that exist now are, they're so abundant. Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Thank you.